0: Welcome to Atmospheric Tales, a podcast that amplifies stories and experiences related to air pollution and climate change from around the world. I'm your host Shahzad Kani, and welcome to another episode of Atmospheric Tales. Our guest today is a human geographer whose research focuses on post-colonial environmentalism, tribal and indigenous theorization, anti-colonial politics, and race and ethnicity in South Asia. Born in Sikkim in India, she has lived and worked extensively in the eastern and western Himalayas, such as in Sikkim, Uttarakhand, and Ladakh. She holds a PhD from the Department of Geography at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the USA, and she is currently an Assistant Professor of Asian Studies at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee in the USA. So far, she has focused on the Indian Himalayan borderlands and the relationship between frontier territories and mainland India. More recently, she has collaborated with scholars working on indigenous politics in North America, focusing on indigenous youth activism, infrastructure politics, and decolonial futurity. I am excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Mabel Gergen. Our interviewer today is Dr. Rahul Ranjan. Rahul is currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Oslo Met University in Oslo, Norway. He is working on the project titled, The Currents and Consequences of Legal Innovations on the Rights of Rivers, funded by the Norwegian Research Council. He was recently awarded the Research Day Award by the Research Council of Norway to conduct study for his project in Uttarakhand, India, that contributes to the research on the rights of river. He is the editor of the upcoming book, At the Crossroads of Rights, published by Rutledge Press London, due in spring of 2022. His doctoral thesis will be soon published in an upcoming manuscript titled Bisra Munda and the Politics of Memory in Jharkhand. He holds a PhD from the School of Advanced Study, University of London, and a bachelor's and master's degree from the University of Delhi, along with a master of philosophy with a research dissertation from the Center for Political Studies at the Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. Welcome to the show, Mabel and Rahul.
1: Thank you, Shahzad, for the generous introduction and welcome, Mabel.
2: Thank you, Rahul, and thank you, Shahzad, so much for that introduction. I'd like to start
1: the conversation by asking Mabel a question related to Himalaya and the approach of the Indian state. So how did you come to be interested in Himalayas and how do you reconcile your ideas of belonging and the research interest?
2: Yeah, so there are several ways to answer this question, I think, but it would be impossible for me to separate, you know, my personal family history and background from the more academic and scholarly motivations for working in the region. So most of my research in the Himalayan region is based in Sikkim, and my mother belongs to Sikkim. And when I was doing my master's in the Tata Institute of Social Sciences in Bombay, where I did a master's in social work, my master's thesis, this was like a year-long thesis, it was based in North Sikkim in the Songu Reserve of North Sikkim. So my mother is from Sikkim. I was born in Gangtok, and my mother also belongs to the Lepcha tribe. But I grew up in Daradun, which is in the Western Himalayan state of Uttarakhand. So I did not grow up in Sikkim. So in some senses, for me, doing my master's research was to kind of connect with my mother's history and her ancestry, which I felt a little disconnected from. So uh, the Lepcha tribe, they're not just in Sikkim, they also live in West Bengal, Nepal, and Bhutan, but they're recognized as indigenous to Sikkim. And, you know, indigenous is like a loaded term, depending on what context you're in. But here for the Lepchas, what I mean by indigenous is that Lepcha oral histories uh, see Sikkim, or more specifically the Mount Kanchenjunga, as the birthplace of the tribe. So all the tribes, like origin stories, like their mythologies, kind of like a Garden of Eden kind of story, that the first Lepcha man and woman were created from the snow from Mount Country Zonga. So that's what I mean by indigenous, that they had prior claims to that territory. But I also remember hearing uh, growing up like, that Zongu was a very backwards place. It was remote. It was talked about even by other Sikkimese and other Lepcha people who didn't live in Zongu in North Sikkim. And this backwardness was not only due to the lack of basic infrastructure, like roads, schools and hospitals, but it was also because Zongu lectures were seen as superstitious, naive, and kind of like not industrious, like lazy. So there were all of these like narratives that now I recognize very clearly are these stereotypes of indigenous groups that you find across contexts. So I think initially, like when I did kind of in my master's, I was really kind of drawn to this region, to the Zongu Reserve, because of this contradictory narrative about the place that was both special to the Lepchas, but also seen as backward at the same time, right? So it also happened that as I was finishing my master's thesis, which I almost gave up on halfway through, if it had not been for a really, really wonderful professor at TIS, Dr. Bodhirani and the rest of my professors in the and tribal social work specialty track that I was in. So as I was finishing up my master's, thesis, which was on the role and status of lecture youth in preserving their culture. Young people who I had spoken to during the interview, during my fieldwork, they went on a hunger strike to protest against seven large dams that would cut across reserve land. And this was like one of the biggest kind of protests. If you've read any of my work or heard about the lecture protest, you know that it lasted for three years. This hunger strike turned into a series of mini hunger strikes. Some were like 60 days long. And then they just did this relay hunger strike where groups of young people or like people from Songgu would come and sit for like a day or two and then some other person would come and take a place. So this went on for three years. So I knew that I wanted to somehow. somehow come find a way back to Sikkim and find a way back to Zongu to kind of follow the stories and follow the people who I had met with during my master's research and see, you know, how they were involved in these protests and what had happened. I finished my master's in 2008 and I ended up going back to Deradun after finishing it and worked for an NGO called People Science Institute. It's a well-respected environmental NGO in North India and they happened to be working on an anti-dam grassroots movement in Uttarakhand. And that's where I got a lot of my on the field experience, especially understanding state policy discourse, looking at the hydropower policy carefully, talking to both state groups, but also grassroots organizations, And while I was working with the River Conservation Group at PSI, I met a graduate student from UNC Chapel Hill, which is where I ended up doing my PhD, Dr. Georgina Drew, who's now at Adelaide University, who told me to apply to UNC Geography because they had just hired a very wonderful person called Sarah Smith, who did research in the park. So that's how I ended up binding my path to graduate studies. But how I came to the Himalayan region and how I came to be interested in the Himalayan region, it's like impossible to separate both the personal and the professional. And I'll just say this one last thing about my father. So my father is from Ladakh, and we were actually in Dehradun because of his work as a geologist at the Wadia Institute of Himalayan Geology. He later shifted to Glaciology. And while he was from Ladakh, he dedicated most of his career to studying the Dokrani Obama Glacier in Uttarakhand studying specifically glacier recession. So even growing up, I was like surrounded by a lot of conversation, not just about climate change, Uttarakhand specifically, hearing about disasters even from then, like her hearing about landslides and the impacts of landslides in this region, but also Sikkim, where my father also did work on landslides uh, when he was posted there before we moved to Daradun. So in these three places, Sadaq, Sikkim, and Uttarakhand, have really shaped me very profoundly. And as I learn more about the history of the region, it does helped me contextualize a lot of these big academic theories, you know, about the Anthropocene, even questions around climate change, and even the more pressing concerns around hydropower infrastructure and development frontier context but also so much of my own lived experience like growing up mostly in Sikkim and Uttarakhand I didn't spend much time in Ladakh, the but these three places have really shaped me profoundly and why I see my research as a lifelong endeavor that will be situated in this entire region. So yeah thanks for that question.
1: Thanks that's such a wonderful way to dovetail your personal passage to the professional interests that you hold. I wanted to know what do you think about this existing perception of vulnerability that is associated with Himalayas and that is supported by a theory called Theory of Himalayan Environmental Degradation? So I'd like some reflection on that too.
2: Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for this question. So this theory of Himalayan degradation that you're talking about, Rahul, it's a theory that emerged in the 70s, and it was a popular theory of environmental crisis in the Nepali Himalayan region. And this emerged specifically from the Nepal region and was popularized by a journalist, actually, Eric Eckholm, in his book, Losing Ground. Now, this theory has been discredited and challenged, especially among critical social scientists. But when it first came out, when it emerged in the 70s and 80s, it was a very popular theory. And it blamed environmental crisis, especially in steep sloped areas in the Nepali Himalayas on short-sighted local practices like forest clearance and overgrazing in Nepal. So basically blaming some of the most poorest and vulnerable populations in this region who depended on the forest for their livelihoods and farmers and agrarian folks involved in agricultural practices as the most responsible for Nepal's environmental crisis. And this shaped years of environmental research in Nepal and even other parts of the Himalayan region, including India until much later, it was challenged because it was an oversimplification of ground realities. I actually used this article by Julie Gutman. I think it came out in the 90s and it's, it examines this theory of Himalayan degradation, especially the discursive context, because for those who know about development theories, the discursive context of how particular truths are, ideas of development are cemented into policy and practices, a lot of it comes because of this discursive power. And what I mean by that is there was already an existing understanding globally, there was an overpopulation problem in the global south. And there's a long history of this, but it dovetails very well with a neo-Malthusian way of looking at the global south. A lot of these countries were just emerging out of decolonization and needed a lot of support, but this was also the time that aid was being given to this region. But the aid, especially in Nepal, in the context of the period of Havana degradation, was started not just in terms of trying to work out environmental crisis questions, but a lot of the aid was also being given to curtail the population of the poor Nepali populations that were seen as responsible for this. So this is kind of a convoluted way of saying that there's a lot of universal assumptions that we find embedded in grand theories and narratives like the theory of Himalayan degradation. And in this case, the universal assumption is that poor people or people who live next to forests do not know how to manage their own resources and are ignorant of how they would take care of their own and they need state intervention. So in the 80s, this theory Came under a lot of intense scrutiny. And it was Blakey and Maldavian, at least in geography, we kind of read about them, who argued that the theory of modern integration was drawing upon a lot of already circulating ideas of backwardness of the global South, their technological incompetence, and again, this neo Malthusian idea. And it's important in the Indian Himalayan context to kind of understand this theory, because this has also shaped years and years of colonial forestry practices, as well as conservation practices in India. So we see this logic of the theory of environmental degradation, despite it being discredited, even in conservation and biodiversity policies that end up creating what we call in you know, political ecology, as fortress conservation that start restricting forest access to local populations, banning hunting, basically severing the ties of local populations with the forests that they depended on for their livelihoods and daily needs. So these boundaries between what was considered farm and forest, right, was not so solid in these regions, but these conservation zones solidified these boundaries. I see in the Anthropocene narrative a similar kind of universal assumption. And this is not to say that there isn't a crisis, right? There was environmental degradation It was a material reality in the Nepali Himalayan region. And so is, you know, the disasters and the threats that we are seeing in the Anthropocene epoch. But it is not to discredit or discount the material reality of these disasters, right? But it's to think about what kind of crisis narrative are we allowing to define this epoch, right? And what a lot of decolonial scholars have kind of criticized the anthropocene epoch is that it sees these climate change-induced ecological apocalypse, it's framed as something that is impending, that it's something that's happening in the future, even though a lot of existing communities are facing these dire threats right now and have been for decades in place in the global South. And the other thing that such a narrative does is that it erases, or it only imagines the future in apocalyptic terms, whereas communities in this region, especially indigenous groups that I'm working with or thinking with, they do not see the future as only apocalyptic. And this is coming from indigenous theorists here in North America, Kyle White and Zoe Todd in particular, that indigenous groups are post-apocalyptic survivors. That is that they have lived through several iterations of apocalypse in terms of state genocide being moved from their traditional territories, dispossession and all that so for indigenous groups climate crisis is an exacerbation of these existing crises but there is a way and we'll talk about this later about how indigenous ties to the territory their spiritual cosmological visions do not foreclose possibilities they do not only imagine the future in apocalyptic terms but think about enduring ties to a particular place and a particular territory this idea of vulnerability there is vulnerability right there's a material reality to it but this big grand theories We have to be careful about what narrative of crisis and what kind of vulnerability do they make visible and what do they erase in that process.
1: Thank you. That's such a fascinating way to describe, which is so layered. And I've always also personally held that the idea of Himalayas is so fraught, not only in terms of weather, but also the diversity of voices that exist within the region. Any form of linear representation can come at the cost of eliminating another form of voice. So thank you so much for that really nuanced explanation. I was also wondering then how do the people, especially in the Eastern Himalayan region, which is, you know, from Eastern Nepal and all the way to Northeast, cut across Bhutan, receive the Indian state and also different ways in which they relate to the so-called mainland India from their position of being a frontier state.
2: This is another great question. It's one that I feel we really need to reckon with, especially given how so much is shifting at the frontiers and borderlands. And I mean specifically in terms of when you think about Kashmir, when you think about even Ladakh and Sikkim, these two places that I have personal ties to, but I also am doing research in. So much has shifted in the last, I would say, few years since 2019 specifically with the abrogation of Article 370. So just a little bit of context before I get into <laughs> talking about these constitutional protections. So growing up in Sikkim, so as I said, I grew up in Deradun and I was born in Gangtok and I think I was two years old maybe. We moved to Deradun. So we would end up going to Sikkim for like summer holidays. So I remember just all of my happiest memories are from like spending time in Sikkim with my uncles and aunts because my mother's whole family is in Sikkim. So Sikkim just has this one road. If you look at the Map of Northeast India. You see this chicken's neck, which connects like these eight northeastern states to the rest of India. So the train was drop us off in Siliguri because we didn't have a train going up all the way, or even a flight all the way up to Sikkim my uncle would come and pick us up from Siliguri. So Siliguri is in West Bengal and we'd be driving up from West Bengal to Gangtok. And as soon as we would cross over the border from West Bengal to Sikkim, my uncle, he's like my favorite uncle, he would like turn to me and just be like, so this is where India ends and Sikkim begins, okay? (laughs) He would say this. And I just like remember this so clearly because he would say it all the time. And all the drive up from Siliguri to Gangtok was like around three hours. And inevitably, especially because in the summers you're traveling, there's going to be rain monsoons, there would be landslides and we would be stuck. And especially to remember actually returning from Gantok to Siliguri, we'd have to plan way in advance because always, we would always be stuck in landslides. And so when you're stuck in landslides, you have to wait for people to come cleared up. And then you would have all these stories that people start complaining about the state of the roads, how there's only one major highway connecting, and also complaining about people from the plains who don't know how to drive especially the army people who had big trucks and they would take over the entire road. So it was very interesting. I feel like as I was writing my dissertation and I was thinking of this question, the relationship between the Indian state and the mainland, growing up in dehradun you don't really sense that as much, this kind of distance from the state, especially because Deiradun is like close to Delhi. And there's dehradun and Uttarakhand had their own specific history of breaking away from Uttar Pradesh. This, for me, has really shaped how I understand the mainland relationship, especially with Sikkim and Ladakh. But, you know, there was no active political movement in Sikkim or a clearly expressed desire to secede from the country, like one might find in places like Nagaland, Manipur, and Kashmir there was a lot of complaint, especially in moments of crisis, where there's a landslide or even everyday talk. And this has to do with Sikkim's history. Sikkim was an independent Buddhist kingdom till 1975. So even though there is this critique of the Indian state, it hasn't boiled into this active political movement. But there is this very strong, what I call, a kingdom nostalgia that I see, especially among Alepcha and Bhutia communities, who, when Sikkim was a Buddhist monarchy, had a very special status within the Buddhist monarchy. And my mother's side of the family, the Lepcha side, they lament the loss of the Namgyal dynasty, which was the monarchy with Sikkim's merger in 1975. Why I call this kingdom nostalgia, I find my aunts like watching Bhutan TV and there's a way in which they talk about how Bhutan has been able to maintain its kingdom status and they've transitioned to democracy now. So there's this kind of a longing among certain groups that, oh, Sikkim was this kingdom and we could have been like Bhutan, we could have managed our territory like Bhutan. But of course, that's problematic because we know of like how Bhutan also has, you know, treated its Nepali populations. And that's a whole other history here. But I think this is important to kind of also understand that the North (laughs) Pacific or the Himalayan region is not this kind of monolith in terms of how they relate to the state. So places like Sikkim and Ladakh have a fairly, I would say, um, amicable relationship with the Indian state. And a lot of this also has to do with how they are strategically important in terms of geopolitically. But it also has to do with uh, how there hasn't been a history of resource extraction in these regions, as we see in Assam, Nagaland and other parts of Northeast. And I think especially you find this analysis in Dolly Kikon's new book, Living with Oil and Coal, about how this kind of carbon economy, carbon society has really shaped this kind of violent, extractive politics in this region, but also how the Indian military has a different kind of force that it exerts in these regions. And you don't see a similar kind of relationship with the Indian military in Sikkim and Ladakh, even though there's a huge presence there. But, you know, this is something that I'm also trying to slowly understand because my research has mostly been in Sikkim and I understand even Ladakh, different states in Northeast have a very different relationship with Indian state. And some of it I know because of my friends, my sister-in-law is from Nagaland so I have some of this knowledge from personal conversations, but I think there's so much to explore in terms of how certain states in Northeast are seen as violent or are seen as more intractable, whereas Sikkim Ladakh get painted, maybe because also because of their Buddhist kind of heritage, as peaceful Territories. But I think there's something very important to explore more here in terms of the histories of resource extraction in each of these regions and how they're different and how these have shaped this kind of violent extractivist kind of relationship and even the military's presence in this region. That's
1: really helpful and very fascinating answer. I was just thinking how you know disruption in itself becomes a metaphor to explain the rendering of relationship between the two states, you know, the Indian state and the state of Sikkim. And this, the disruption, whether natural or produced, anthropogenic, renders this relationship and tensions so visible. And what would happen to this as the climate change becomes more uh, manifest? We've learned from your work, people, over the years, and you produce this really useful and fascinating cutting-edge research and impact of hydro project, especially in Sikkim to demonstrate how the material change is introduced by these interventions, also like how it functions as an extension of epistemological violence. I was wondering if you could elaborate on different challenges that sort of exist today or define the landscape of conflict more broadly and within which how do these hydro projects sit well with the existing geological condition that is Sikkim being an earthquake-prone area
2: I'll answer the last question first about hydropowers and how they sit with existing geological conditions. When I started doing research in Sikkim, when I was writing up my research proposal, I wasn't thinking of earthquakes as much because I was just thinking about the protests. I was drawn to this region, to doing this research because of my master's work in Zonggu and following specifically. So initially, I thought most of my research would be about this social movement. But then the earthquake that happened in 2011, so this was this major 6.9 magnitude earthquake that was followed by several aftershocks. And the epicenter of this earthquake was very close to an under-construction hydropower projects. And it was covered by the news media. And that was how I analyzed it in my papers and my research is this moment, right, of like what you said, disruption, rupture, that really made visible how ill-prepared the state was, not just in terms of what was happening with hydropower and how there weren't a lot of safety protocols being followed. It's like something called rim treatment, where they have to stabilize the hillsides using this kind of steel mesh wiring. So you have to do that when you're constructing tunnels, right, in the this region, but in a lot of places, these hillsides were not reinforced with these steel mesh wirings. So people started talking about how hydropower is in a spiritual way, right? In a larger metaphysical, moral way, these earthquakes were seen as a punishment for not respecting the sacred land. But people also understood from a more scientific perspective that these projects were just destabilizing as I said, growing up, landslides and even earthquakes were like part of the region's geology. So it's not that people were taken by surprise. Of course, the earthquake and landslides are devastating when they happen. But because of this giant infrastructure that is in place that you can see right in front of you, it's impossible not to associate these two things together. So even if the state might not be willing to do deeper research, connecting these two things, it's for people who live next to these projects. And you see this in Uttarakhand as well. There is no doubt for people that there's some connection between this giant infrastructure. And this is an important thing, just in terms of what these projects look like, because what I heard from a lot of people who had agreed to these hydropower projects initially was that on paper, if you look at an image, if you Google run of the river hydropower project, you get this beautiful image of pipes that are moving through green meadows and stuff. And these are just these sketches. So people had no idea what this infrastructure would look like, what the physical infrastructure, like how big it would be, how daunting it would be. And when this infrastructure started coming up, that's when people were like, okay, this is really big. This is an eyesore." So there's no doubt for me and the people who I work with most closely, that these hydropower projects are deepening the vulnerability of the region. And in fact, what I've seen in Sikkim is that these repeated disasters have actually solidified opposition against these projects. So when I was doing my fieldwork, that was around 2012 to 2014, I was going back and forth with the Sikkim pretty regularly. And most of the panchayat, so Sikkim also has panchayat piraj. It is not under the six schedules. It has a different constitutional amendment, Article 371, but it has panchayats. So these panchayat people who were very close to the government and power were all very much in favor of the projects. But since then, I've seen panchayats in Zongu. Actually, all of the panchayats come together and say that we do not want any dams in this region because the disasters have taken such a toll and it's impossible to ignore the material impacts. And speaking of the first question that you asked, what is the challenges that exist or define the landscape of conflict in Sikkim? So I haven't done fieldwork in Sikkim for a few years now, and I'm feeling kind of disconnected, especially with COVID. It's been hard to travel back. But there are two things that even as I'm serving from afar and, and talking to my colleagues in Sikkim University and for family members there, there are two things that come to mind immediately, especially when I think of questions of infrastructure and disasters and the future of the region. So the first thing is for Sikkim, I think, especially after 2019, which is when the 25-year term of Pawan Kumar Chambling, the ex-chief minister of Sikkim, who was from the party Sikkim Democratic Front. So he had a five-year term and people would call him like the king of Sikkim, basically. He was defeated at the hands of SKM, which is Sikkim Krantikari Mocha. And it's completely shifted the political equation in the region. So Pawan Kumar Chandling and SDF were very key in introducing hydropower to the region. And they also faced a lot of opposition, not just from the anti-dam activists, but even from SKM, which emerged actually when I was doing my field work, SKM had just emerged as a brand new party and a lot of the anti-dam activists were supporting them. So this was a huge victory in some ways, even for the anti-dam activists, they were very excited that SKM had won and defeated SDF. But it is uncertain right now what their position is on hydropower projects and And from what I understand, it is looking like hydropower projects will still be implemented in Sikkim, which is like no surprise because that is part of the larger geopolitical strategy in this region as well. Alongside by right, the defeat of Pawan Kumar Chamling and the shifting of regional alliances, BJP has also for the first time entered Sikkim. So before 2019, BJP Congress had no representation in the Sikkim Legislative Assembly. And now, because of a lot of last minute negotiations and deals, the BJP holds, I think, 10 of the 32 seats in the Legislative Assembly. So there's a lot of concerns, especially among Lepchamputia and a lot of the tribal minority communities, that the Special constitutional protections that I've been talking about, like Article 371, that give a lot of protection to tribal land and tribal communities cannot just sell their land to non-tribal groups. These special protections, you find them across the Himalayan region. There's a lot of concern that with the BJP's entries and the shifting regional political affiliations, that these constitutional protections might be threatened. The second bigger challenge, I think, is all of this is happening in the backdrop of very high-profile geopolitical shifts and standoffs. So in Ladakh and Sikkim, we had the Doklam and the Galwan Valley, right? And Arunachal Pradesh too, like we're seeing more military activity as China is getting bolder, building houses and all kinds of roads and infrastructure. And there's a lot of amazing scholarship coming up around this kind of tension, especially shadow states by Bernice Kyoth Rechard. Gives a lot of great historical context. To this okay. India-China tension, but this is only going to escalate. And as this geopolitical tension escalates, we're also going to see more infrastructural development in this region, which has been a promise for a very long time and has actively been desired by people. But the people desire basic infrastructure like roads, hospitals, education. But the state wants to bring in infrastructure that will aid the military the easier movement of the military. So there's going to be some conflicts there, but there's also going to be a lot of public support that you will see for infrastructural projects, like the railways project that is being constructed. There's parts of it will go through West Bengal, but it's also supposed to connect again. So I think these are the kind of the two big challenges that I'm seeing.
1: This brings me to ask you two interrelated questions, but also sort of an end to our podcast. But before that, I'd like everyone to know that Mabel has discussed this tension at great length, especially in her article called Living with the Earthquake, which demonstrates and has a critical engagement with indigenous environmentalism. In the article, you argue for how indigenous environmentalism must be in dialogue with diverse interpretation and registers of loss and erasure that often push our analysis beyond ecological loss. So I was thinking on one end, if you could elaborate a bit on it in relation to what we've been learning about Anthropocene. And the second is a question more about what are you working on now and what's your new research that we must look out for?
2: Thank you so much for that question, and thank you so much for your kind words about that article. I think this idea of pushing our analysis beyond ecological loss and thinking about diverse interpretation and registers of loss and erasure, this idea was coming a little bit from my frustration with geography, and especially critical geography and more critical Marxist analyses of geography that were not engaging with more spiritual, religious, or cosmological understandings that were emerging from indigenous social movements or just being expressed by Indigenous groups as strategies of resistance, we see it within more critical approaches to Indigenous social movements that what we distill is those parts of the movement that most interest us, that would contribute to disciplinary theories and Marxist ideas or social movement theories. But this engagement with spirituality and religion and cosmology was kind of being left aside. And I think there's this hubris maybe in geography and some certain social science disciplines that sees this as something, the purview of anthropologists, linguists or humanities, religious studies, people. But as I was doing fieldwork, I just realized that I couldn't ignore these questions. And it's not just that I was trying to ignore them, but these questions were baked into my research questions. So when I was asking people about hydropower or like earthquakes and how they connected these two things, I was always asking them, how do you interpret the earthquake? How do you understand the earthquake and the scientific or what explanations are people giving? But what are also spiritual explanations that people have for these earthquakes? So this inquiry was baked into my research because of this frustration that I felt with my own discipline. Even though I say we must push our analysis beyond ecological loss, what I'm also, I think, pushing people to see is that how, even what you are working on, right, Rahul, like looking at emotions and memories, right, that when we unpack these things, these ideas, these emotions people's connections, we are able to find a different, a whole different outlook or a whole different ecosystem, I think, of ideas that are also tied to colonial histories, material politics. So an example of this is there's a lot of talk about indigenous languages being seen as disappearing, but that work is not connected to how indigenous groups are also losing access to forest land, loss of territory, right? Because indigenous languages are tied to a whole system of knowledge, and it's affected by loss of surrounding ecosystems, but critical disciplines only see language loss as maybe as concern of the linguistic anthropologists. So in my research, I see in Sikkim, the hunting rituals, right, like the Indian state conservation forestry policies that I talked about earlier that emerge from this theory of Himalayan degradation kind of logic. They replicated these colonial logics that hardened these farm and forest boundaries and influenced people's mobility between these two kind of uh, spaces. In Sikkim, the implementation of the 1972 Wildlife Protection Act and the 1980 Sikkim Forest Conservation Act made hunting illegal. So as a consequence of this, you see Alepcha hunting practices within Zonggu, they started declining. There's a huge decline in this in the 70s and 80s. But as these hunting practices are declining, you also see associated rituals to the hunk hunting deity, Pong Rung, also see a rapid decline. So while in this article, I've talked about the growing influence of Tibetan Buddhism and how it has historically kind of edged out Lepcha shamanism. The decline of Lepcha shamanism, we can't only say it's because of Tibetan Buddhism, but it's also a consequence of shrinking access to forests and the ban on hunting due to these stringent conservation laws. So I think in my work, I'm trying to expand how we interpret loss and how, when our interlocutors talk about loss, they talk about it in multiple registers, but especially for those of us who are more critically inclined, we may not register this other register that is talking about spirituality or cosmology. And likewise, I feel like for people who are studying languages, who are studying culture or religion, it's important to bring this kind of material a more critical analysis, right, that accounts for colonial, pre-colonial, the sense of loss and erasure and these histories especially i'm seeing young people in zongku pick up on this and where in their protest, they are talking not just about the ecological impacts, but they're also talking about the history of their tribe and talking about their tribe in ways that is jumping the scale of the nation state in many ways that is connecting lectures across Nepal, Bhutan, West Bengal to say that there's this larger territory that indigenous groups have. And some of this is now parceled off in these different countries and because of these borders. But we have these spiritual ties to this particular territory. So I find a lot of hope in how Indigenous youth are articulating their connections to the land. In terms of what I'm working on, as I said, I find a lot of hope in young people. And my master's research started with an interest in young people. And youth politics like all this, this is not perfect in any way. There's a lot of problematic stereotypes about other groups. And especially you find this in indigenous communities, a kind of focus on purity. So there are those troubling discourses. But I do find hope, especially in their visions of a different kind of future for their people, I find a lot of hope in that and I am currently working on a project about young people from Ladakh who moved to Delhi for higher education and many of them have actually moved back to Ladakh and are trying to start something there. So I'm working with an artist who is part of this project and we're trying to think about creating like an art project or something. I do see my research kind of trying to connect young people across these regions in Sikkim, Ladakh and the Northeast. But I'm also working with my geography colleagues at UNC on this kind of collective project called Desirable Futures, where we are interrogating in our different sites across the world, these different notions of time and temporality, especially how they emerge from radical social movements. I'm also working on a project with my Sikkim colleagues, Karish Lepcha and Kalzang Putia on critically examining colonial texts about Sikkim and West Bengal in this region. And lastly, I'm really interested in learning more about diverse understandings of indigeneity across Nepal, Northeast and the Himalayan region, and even Tibet and this entire Highland Asia region. And I'm in dialogue with Pasang Sherpa and Dolly Kikon. And if you're listening to this podcast and you work on indigeneity in any of these regions, please reach out to me. I'm really interested in building a critical mass or just getting tapped into these networks so that I can find out more about what are the conceptualizations of indigeneity across these regions. So thank you so much for all your questions, Raul. These are such lovely, thoughtful and generative questions.
1: No, it's absolutely my pleasure to ask you and also learn so much from your work. And I absolutely also believe that there's something about the register of grief and loss, it's entangled with different forms of vulnerability and not just one. So it's really been a great learning curve to have you do such fantastic work and very happy to know about your new project. They seem very promising and I'm sure you're going to produce great work. Thanks again, April and out for having me in this podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Rahul. You have such great questions. And thank you, Shahzad, also for inviting me. This is like my first podcast ever.
0: (laughs) With that, I would like to thank our guest, Dr. Mabel Gurgan, and our interviewer, Dr. Rahul Ranjan, for joining us on this episode of Atmospheric Tales. Thanks to all our listeners for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe and share.